Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American for the seven days starting December 10th, 2008. I'm Steve Mursky. Are you aware of an impending attack on the planet Earth? Yes. That's a scene from the new movie The Day the Earth Stood Still, an updated version of the classic 1951 film of the same name that opens December 12th. We'll talk with director Scott Derrickson about the movie, his astronomer advisor, and other science-y stuff related to the film. And we'll hear from Nobel laureate Richard Roberts about open access science publishing. Plus, we'll test your knowledge about some recent science in the news. First up, director Scott Derrickson. He called in last Saturday. We started by talking about particular challenges of remaking an iconic film. The original was 57 years ago, and uh, and a lot of the the elements of it, you know, needed to be updated for modern audiences and modern modern audience expectations and that sort of thing. Um, but it, it it is still very much an attempt to. Uh, preserve aspects and elements, iconic elements from the original film, and certainly the basic storyline from the original film that made it special in the first place. So it's, it, it's a tricky balance putting those two things together, but that was, uh, that was the attempt and that was, you know, if that was what the reimagining of it was, uh, was an attempt to do. And speaking of a tricky attempt, I mean, the, the thought of, of doing this project at all, I mean, was it a little scary for you? Because I know that for a lot of sci-fi fans, the that uh, that 1951 day the Earth stood still is sacred. Yeah, um, and it's still there. You know, I mean, I think that 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 I, my, I, I think that if you're going to remake a movie and if you're going to remake a classic movie, especially, you need to have a good reason. Um, you shouldn't do something like that lightly. I wasn't. Scared, I was certainly skeptical about the idea when Fox approached me about it. They had a script, and and you know they wanted to do the remake. And I love the original film. The original film's an extraordinary movie. And and when I read the script, it made sense to me the idea of doing a new version of of this. And what made sense to me was that it is an extraordinary story. It it the original film is rooted so deeply in the ideas of. Uh, social problems of its time, the Cold War specifically, and the fear of the bomb, and the struggle to establish the UN. And I love the idea of telling the same story in in uh, you know modern times, and dealing with the new kind of social peril that we've put ourselves in, and some of the social problems that we've got. I thought that made sense, and I also respect um, the fact that you know people love the original so much, but for the mass movie-going audience, the the far, you know, the I mean, ninety-eight percent of the movie-going public doesn't know this film, and um, it, it's not a film that the most most modern moviegoers uh, know or or would recognize. Um, and I love the idea of bringing, you know, this great story to a new audience. And, you- and I and my my position on remakes is that if you do a good remake or a bad remake um you don't change the original film it's still there mm-hmm. you know there've been four versions of invasion of the body snatchers and i think philip kaufman's version was brilliant and maybe even better than don siegel's original i think the the, the two following ones were far inferior to don siegel's original but i don't think any of the three uh remakes of Invo- invasion of the body snatchers changed the the original at all it's the same film that it was can you just talk a little bit about 
how this movie came to be because according to the production notes, Reeves' manager, who, who winds up being the producer here, uh, had this idea in mind a long time ago and, and now it's a reality. Yeah, that was, and that was, uh, something that he told me, um, you know, that he had wanted to do this and he'd liked the idea of doing this, uh, with, with Keanu, you know, years and years ago. Um, and then he wasn't involved at all in the development of the project early on. I mean, it was done with 20th Century Fox by themselves. They just, they were hiring writers and I think they were working on screenplays for years. And when they had one they liked, they sent it to me. And, um, and then what I got on board and, and, uh, and at that point we started talking about, you know, actors and actresses and, and I said I wanted, uh, Jennifer Connelly and, and, uh, when we talked about Clad 2, I said I wanted Keanu and, and they, everyone thought that would work real well. And then, you know, as it turned out, the producer had already, you know, really liked and talked in the past with other people about doing this movie with Keanu. So that was, uh, that was interesting to find out. You had an encounter with Robert Wise, the director of the 1951 Day the Earth Stood Still. Could you just talk about that real quick? Yeah, I was a film student uh, in the early 90s, and uh, at a, the first film that I made at USC Film School um, got into a film festival in Indianapolis, Indiana, and Robert Wise is a Hoosier, and he uh, was receiving a Lifetime Achievement Award at that festival, So, and I loved his work. I mean, he's, you know... Definitely my top ten favorite American directors, probably in the top five, and and uh, so I asked the festival director if I could meet him, you know, outside the the gala event of the of the festival, and to my surprise, he arranged a private dinner for me at Robert Wise's hotel, and so I went to Robert Wise's hotel and had dinner with him at the hotel restaurant, and and um, <clears throat> it was it was really fantastic, it was a really memorable experience, and. I talked to him a lot about his films and asked him a lot of questions about, I remember talking about the sand pebbles and talking about I want to live and, um, you know, of course talking about, uh, I remember telling him that the haunting and the day the earth stood still were my two favorite films of his and, and, um, and I remember him telling me, uh, I told him I was interested in, in working in different genres and that I did, I was, you know, a fan of particularly horror and sci-fi, and he strongly urged me to start my career in the horror genre. And 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 I asked him why, and he said that hor- horror is one of the best genres, if not the best genre, to start in, which he did. And he said because it allows you to demonstrate w- your command of the medium of film, and you know you can do more with the camera and more with sound design in horror than any other genre. And uh, and he said if you make a good horror film. Y- People will be very likely to let you work in other genres, and uh, and it made so much sense. It was good advice. I took it, and, and things have worked out well since then. That is really interesting. I love to hear directors, you know, when uh, on inside the actor's studio. I far prefer to listen to directors talk than actors. I mean, they're all interesting, but I find that I learn a lot from directors that I can apply in things that have nothing to do with making movies. Well, this is this is the thing that 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 I learned from him in respect to uh making movies but but in some ways it just it's 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 stuck in my mind so seriously as just as a a creative person and as an artist in general i i was you know talking about um how interesting it was to me that he had been able to work in so many genres and he spoke with great pride about the fact that there was no such thing as a robert wise style mhm and and you know he he 
told me how that he approached each film um, and did not try to imprint his own style on it, but tried to figure out what's the best way to tell this story. And I and and what occurred to me and the, the sort of life lesson I've gotten from that was that you know there's humility in that. And and there was there was part of his greatness as a director, I think, came from a humility that he had that he wasn't out there trying to put himself on the screen. He was trying to put the movie on the screen in the in the best form that it could be, that it could exist. And and he was very proud that he had serviced his films that way, and that no one could look at his body of work and 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 say this is a Robert Wise film because it's this way. And it's because it seems like director directors for the most part would want just the opposite. They would want their films to be recognized as their films. And there's a lot, there's a lot to that. There's a lot to that. Um, there's a lot to learn from that very simple, you know, thing that he had said. Uh, astronomer Seth Shostak is your, your, one of your technical advisors for the film. What did he bring to the film? He brought a lot to the film, you know, because it's science fiction, uh, I felt pretty strongly that the science needed to be real and that the science language needed to, to be, you know, legitimate. And, uh, you know, it started with him reading the script and going through it and flagging all of the things that were either simply scientifically wrong or scientifically impossible or, or, or possibly just scientifically suspect. And then with each of those things, he, he helped create, you know, help fix them basically, you know, and, and, he would correct the language of of some of the science speak that John Ham gives in the in his his uh, briefing to the scientists. Um, he created, you know, we had actually a long discussion uh, about the equation that that John Cleese and um, and uh, and Keanu Reeves playing Professor Barnhart and Klaatu that they work out on the on the on the blackboard and. Um, that equation is a very real equation about a very, you know, significant theoretical physics idea about the nature of the universe. And, and, you know, he spent some time working it out. And we, and Keanu wanted to very, um, wanted to know in detail what the equation meant and, and, and what significance it would have on this Barnhart character and how it would affect the scene. So that was all real science that, that, that was brought into um, into the movie, you know, through Seth, even, even the Nobel Prize being won for biological altruism. There was an awful lot of discussion about what that Nobel Prize was going to be for. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, we wanted it to be, to, to have meaning. And, you know, my wife is a nurse and, and, uh, because my wife is a nurse, anything that I ever write or anything I ever direct will have no, uh, representation of medical procedures that are not correct because my wife will not allow it you know mm-hmm. and and what i've learned from that you know because she hates that in movies and what i've learned from that also is that you need to respect people's professions um when you're representing them in the movie we had military advisors to make sure that our soldiers acted like real soldiers and moved like real soldiers and and uh but for the science aspects of the of this movie because it's science fiction it was particularly important there's a fascinating thing, uh, this really struck me as just a reflection on, on what's now accepted culturally, and that is, uh, Reeves at the beginning of the movie plays a real, a, a real earthling, and apparently he, he gets a, a bit of his skin sampled by whoever the aliens are, and the, the later character played by Reeves is a, a physical clone of that original earthling, and, but that's never really 
explain because it, it doesn't have to be that we just accept that that's a possibility at this point. Yeah, isn't that interesting? It just shows how far this advanced, um, highly progressive, and even still theoretical science um, has entered the mainstream that you don't have to explain it. It, you just you just put that in there and everybody gets it. Oh yeah, they took his DNA and there he's, he's it's, they they were able to clone his body. And I mean, did you think for for a few minutes about whether you had to explain it or not, or was it? Just... I, I think that there are some people in the audience that won't get it, um, but I think that to explain it anymore would make the majority of the audience feel a bit insulted. You know, right? right. Like we, they think that we're so stupid we don't know what a clone is. You know, I really do. I, it was it was a, it was a decision that was made. Um, but but you know I I, I I did think it was important to have Jennifer make the line where she said you know they they must have come here in the past and taken a DNA sample from a human subject that line is in there. Um, I forgot sure it was that, in there because it was so clear from the the visual storytelling that yeah that, that line happen. that line was that line was put in there ju- just to make sure. But but there was there was conversation about do we show a picture of the old climber and that they know where the DNA came from so that people really get it. It was like, no, people know what this is. And I think that we could have left that line out and it probably, for the most part, probably still would have been fine. That was just a bit of a safety precaution. And Jennifer did a great job on the line. So Mm -hmm. when I looked at the scene with it and without it, it didn't get any better or worse, so I left it in. Cool. Uh, One other thing, this is a carbon-neutral production. How did you uh, try to do that in in, uh, your day-to-day directing of the film? Um, I, I, honestly, I don't know. I mean, I know that that's the case, but that, that became the burden of the physical production people and the physical producers. Um, that was something that, that, that didn't really affect me. And in some ways, I think that that's, um, that's a statement in and of itself that you can, you can have a green production of a major Hollywood movie and, uh, it doesn't have to impinge on the process creatively at all. The only, the only way that I felt, I mean, I know that they, that they, you know, they had, uh, the generators that they used, and I mean, I know I know a little bit about the, the decisions, some of the things that they did that they altered, and you know, driving hybrid cars and stuff like that. But but uh, I, I I was uh, only affected because there was um, very very little paper used on the show, um, and everything was used everything was done digitally, and and so for storyboards it ended up becoming really confusing. Because I, you know, normally with a production, all the storyboards are on paper, and when you, when I would do a new set of storyboards, they just get circulated to the crew, and we were doing all of that digitally, and and it became very confusing. To I never knew if people had the updated storyboards, and some people had them, and some people were, were weren't able to keep them in order on their computer, and so that became the only thing that we had to, the only sort of suffering that I went through uh, as the result of the of the show being, you know, uh, adjusted the way that it was. But, you know, I think that, that it's pretty fantastic that, that the show did that. And I think anytime major corporations, um, you know, go green for lack of a better term, it's, it's, it's a, it's a big deal. I think it's something that needs, needs to happen. And the corporations that are doing it ought to be proud that they're doing it. If the earth dies, you die. If you die, the earth survives. I recently attended a talk at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine in the Bronx by Richard Roberts. 
He won the Nobel Prize for Physiology or Medicine in 1993 for showing that genes can exist as multiple discontinuous segments of DNA called exons. His lecture was a technical description of research, but he began by talking about open access publication, where all published papers are available free on the web. We'll hear his remarks and then a brief conversation I had with him following his talk. I just want to make a pitch for open access publication. As I'm sure all of you now know, NIH has mandated that any paper that is published um, where the work was paid for by NIH funds must now be put in a journal such that within 12 months of publication, the paper can go into PubMed Central and will be freely available to anybody who wants it. And this is something, this idea that open access to the literature is something that all scientists should have is, is something that a lot of us have been pushing for for many years. Um, this is, I, I can't begin to tell you how important this is. Uh, most students these days are not aware of any literature that is not available online. Most of them don't even know where the library is. And I think the best way to bury your results is to publish them in a print-only journal. And unfortunately, an awful lot of good biology is being lost. Um, if you talk to any Drosophila geneticist, they will tell you much of Drosophila genetics was done 50 years ago, and people have forgotten about it because it's, it's buried in the archives of a library somewhere. Um, so this is really the great equalizer. Um, the thought that you could actually mine the literature, now we should be in a position to interpret experiments that were done 20, 30 years ago with much less knowledge than we have now. And there is a, just a wealth of data out there waiting to be mined, looked at, understood, and that can greatly enrich biology. So when you get the chance, if you can find journals like PLOS Biology, which makes stuff available immediately, nucleic acids research, which I'm uh, chief editor of, um, we publish all our stuff immediately. We make it freely available to everybody as soon as it's published. And when you get the chance, please choose these journals uh, and show the publishers that what is good for science is to get the stuff out there quickly, um, not to have them tie up copyright and, and stop you from making it available. A practical question about the mm -hmm. open access issue. You're obviously a big supporter of open access, and you're talking to students. How do we convince them at the beginnings of their careers to publish in PLOS Biology rather than Nature and Science? Yeah. Well, I think one of the questions is their supervisors need to do a good job of educating them. But in particular, I think the universities need to make it quite clear that they're going to be making hiring and tenure decisions not on the basis of the number of papers that they've got in nature and science, but rather on the quality of the work that they've done, irrespective of where it's published. And, I mean, it, it all sounds great, hmm. and yet... How, how do we then motivate the universities in that direction? Because i, I got to tell you, from my point of view as a journalist, we are as guilty as the universities are. We check out what's in science and nature before we check out what's in PLOS, mm -hmm. even though I've been spending a lot more time lately looking at the TLC in PLOS, in PLOS and there's some great stuff in there. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, the universities, it is actually in their best interests to be in support of all of this. And if you look at what's happening at Harvard and MIT, for instance, at the moment, Harvard is insisting um, that their people publish uh, in good places. They're actually providing the money to pay open access charges when that's appropriate. 
MIT are planning on putting everything up on the web. I think many universities are going to put all the work up on the web very quickly. And I think the real problem at the moment is not so much the universities, it's the commercial publishers who are still fighting tooth and nail to try to stop this open access movement. Um, they've not yet accepted that they've lost the battle. And what uh, you talked about the fact that the 12-month restriction, if mm -hmm. you will, yeah. uh, is, is too long. What would you like to see that cut down to, three months? Zero. Zero, yeah. obviously. But what, what would you accept? Well, as I a think you know, the way in which we will try to do it is to get it cut down to six months and then to get it cut to three months, and then down to zero. We'll zeno it down. Yes, exactly. Okay. Thanks very much. Okay, you're welcome. Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories. Only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one. Dealing with company and getting Christmas dinner together are giving women the most stress this holiday season. Story two. Happiness is contagious. Story three, red wine boosts the body's levels of omega-3 oils. And story four, more than 130,000 inflatable breasts are apparently lost at sea. Time's up. Story four is true. En route to Australia, more than 130,000 inflatable breasts are now missing. They were supposed to be sent to subscribers of a men's magazine. The loss could be a boon to science, however. Years ago, a shipment of rubber ducks was lost at sea. When they started to wash up on shores around the globe, scientists used the accidental experiment to get new info on ocean currents. Let's hope this latest lost cargo buoys our knowledge base as well. Story three is true. Red wine has been found to boost your levels of heart-healthy omega-3 oils. That's according to research to be published in the January issue of the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition. The study included over 1,600 people from England, Belgium, and Italy. It could at least partially explain why moderate red wine consumption appears to improve cardiovascular health. And story three is true. Happiness appears to be infectious. According to the British Medical Journal, a happy person made their friends happier and the ripple effect spread to three degrees of separation. For more, listen to the December 5th episode of the Daily Siam podcast, 60 Second Science. All of which means that story one about company and cooking being the biggest stressors on women this time of year is totally bogus. As for pretty much everyone else, it's the economy, stupid. That's according to a poll taken by the American Psychological Association. As Eddie Murphy so succinctly put it 25 years ago, hey, we're losing all our money and Christmas is coming. I won't be able to buy my son the G.I. Joe with the Kung Fu grip. That's it for this edition of Scientific American Science Talk. Visit Siam.com for all the latest science news, videos, and our Ask the Experts feature, which last time I looked was about the controversy over whether a record-breaking potato qualified for the title of world's biggest. Or was that claim half-baked? <laughs> for Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. Just wanna fly